The following history of the Thorians not only explores the history of the Thorian faction of the Inquisition, but allows us to explore the darkest histories of the Inquisition itself, as well as its current makeup, organization, and means of operation. I hope you find it as helpful as I did. The History of the Thorians While the Thorians, as a faction, have only grown in prominence since the 36th millennium, the heart of their philosophy is one that dates back much, much further. Resurrectionist cults and philosophies have waxed and waned throughout the history of the Imperium and can be traced back to the earliest days of the Inquisition. Now considered to be one of the more Puritan factions, the checkered history of those who believe in the Emperor's rebirth has not always been considered to stand on, shall we say, the right side of heresy. The history of the Forians is, at its heart, the history of the battle for the Emperor's very soul. The idea of restoring the Emperor to the Imperium in mortal form is at the heart of the Inquisition's very formation. In the dark days that followed, Horus's invasion of Terra and the Emperor's internment in the Golden Throne the empire he had created was reeling in the aftermath of the civil war and the emperor's ascension to godhood. Four individuals, trusted servants of the emperor during the building of his galactic empire, gathered together to discuss what was to happen next. They were divided in opinion, with two believing that the fledgling imperium could not survive without the emperor to directly lead humanity while the other two were adamant that the Emperor had ascended to a higher plane and that it was folly to interfere with the course of events as they had unfolded. The two resurrectionists, known only as Promius and Moriana, left Terra to begin their quest of bringing back the Emperor, while the two that remained acted quickly to establish themselves within the newly formed Senatorum Imperialis. Known to the Primarchs as loyal servants, these two began to lay plans for the formation of an organization that would combat the efforts of the two dissidents that had left. Thus were the seeds of the Inquisition itself sown. With the backing of the Primarchs, the two first Inquisitors made themselves known to the High Lords and began to recruit like-minded individuals from amongst the adepts and warriors on terror. Their dream of an organization dedicated to the protection of the Emperor would not be realized in their lifetimes, even extended as they were by arcane technologies, and the Inquisition, as it is seen today, did not fully come into existence until the 32nd millennium, by which time the Imperium itself and its many institutions were beginning to grow and spread across the galaxy. Premius and Moriana were not idle during this time, and in the wake of the news of the Emperor's ascension, gathered together a following of their own, particularly amongst those cults and sects uh, that were now appearing on many worlds, claiming the deification of the Emperor. At some point, Moriana and Promius split, their goal still the same, but Moriana determined to use whatever means necessary to achieve her aim. Fearful that Moriana would unleash unspeakable powers of chaos to achieve her goal, Promius created a small army of dedicated followers to combat the menace he believed she posed. 
These two factions clashed many times until Promius's disciples prevailed and Moriana disappeared into the Eye of Terror, where she has a direct influence upon such creatures of evil as Abaddon the Despoiler. Using him, and Emperor knows who else, as tools to achieve her goal. As the Inquisition grew and its presence was felt further and further from terror, it came into contact with the Promians. Several hundred years had passed since the fateful first conclave, and even then the Inquisition, ever a confederacy of individuals rather than a single body, was pursuing several different agendas. The original intent to prevent the reincarnation of the Emperor had been diluted over the centuries, and when the Promians were discovered fighting against an ill-specified chaos threat, they were brought into the fold. Neither the Inquisitors that contacted the sect, nor the Promians themselves, were aware of the irony of their cooperation, and thus the first Resurrectionist Inquisition faction was created. The Rise of Horusianism For nearly a millennia, the Promians continued on their quest, combating threats to the Emperor while seeking a means by which he might be brought back to a mortal body. The research of the Promians rivaled the greatest libraries of the Imperium, but it was dispersed across the galaxy like pieces of a puzzle scattered over a wilderness. By the 33rd millennium, the Inquisition boasted several thousand Inquisitors and hundreds of thousands of agents, but it was still little more than individual bands of dedicated men and women pursuing their own goals, with little or no organisation amongst themselves. Thus were the seeds of heresy allowed to take root once more. It is not known whether Moriana herself was still alive at this point, unnaturally sustained, perhaps by the energies of the Eye of Terror, but her legacy was to make itself felt again. Over a period of several centuries, those inquisitors that had once claimed to be Promians began to pursue a new philosophy. Amongst the great number of texts compiled over the millennia by their predecessors was a growing body of information concerning musings on the nature of Horus and his possession by chaos. Considered by many to be unholy tomes, whose secrets were best left forgotten, these texts once more began to be rediscovered and entered circulation and debate. As the resurrectionists took greater note of these works, a splinter philosophy began to form, eventually to be dubbed the Herosians. Unwittingly, they were continuing the work of Moriana, investigating the possibility of using the power of chaos to restore the Emperor to a mortal form fit for his psychic presence. The nature of their works took them to some of the most uncharted areas of the galaxy, in particular around the Eye of Terror. And, unobserved by most, they grew in number and influence. A few true Promians still remained, and as they became aware of what was happening, they were horrified. Only a handful had ever read the first teachings of Promius, or had been recruited by inquisitors who had seen his works, uh, but they immediately recognised the hand of Moriana in the beliefs of the Horosians. Now a dwindling faction spread across the Imperium, the few Promians that remained did what they could to thwart the efforts of the Herosians, but there was little they could do, and by the end of the 34th millennium, 
The Herosians were a dominant part of the Inquisition's agenda. It was a woman named Stella von Dressen who stood against the tide. She'd been inducted to the Inquisition by a man named Lord Foron, who had in his possession a second-generation copy of Promius's original works. This had been passed from master to apprentice for nearly two and a half thousand years, and the keepers of the book were all dedicated Promians. Inheriting this mantle, von Dressen was still young and idealistic. Warned by her mentor of the threat posed by the Herosians, von Dressen made it her life's work to combat this menace and see the Herosians' power broken. Abandoning her normal inquisitorial duties, von Dressen embarked upon a lifetime of travelling, contacting as many of her fellow inquisitors as was possible. With the Book of Promius as her guide, she began to recruit to her cause, particularly amongst the oldest and most respected inquisitors, as well as creating anti-Herosian cells in the worlds that she visited. Now, well respected amongst the higher circles of the Inquisition, she met Lord Inquisitor Ardlan Bidlan. Between them, they spent two decades on terror itself, and using references and clues from the Book of Promius, they found some of the texts created by the original founders of the Inquisition. Though these were truly ancient and terribly incomplete, the two of them pieced together enough information to show them the original schism between the Inquisition and the Promians. Aged 120 years old, von Dressen reached a harsh decision. For her entire life, she had been dedicated to the Promium cause, and now had to search deep in her heart to admit that it had been a fool's errand. It is a testament to her conviction that Herosianism had to be stopped, that she destroyed her copy of the Book of Promius, and with Begden, initiated a pogrom of pro-resurrection inquisitors. By the time she died, aged 304, this new order was beginning to establish itself, and the Herosians were embattled and dwindling. By the start of the 35th millennium, the Inquisition had turned full circle, and resurrectionism was once again all but eliminated from the Inquisition. The Reign of Blood With all but a few Inquisitors having abandoned the resurrectionist agenda, the Inquisition enjoyed a period of relative stability for several hundred years. However, during this time a new threat was emerging that would focus the attention of the Inquisition to external forces menacing the stability of the Imperium. Thus it was that when perhaps the Inquisition was most needed, its eye was focusing on new alien races discovered on the Eastern Fringe, and events on terror were rapidly turning to anarchy. The 361st High Lord of the Administratum, Gorg van Dyer, used a combination of blackmail, bribery, and murder to establish control of the Senatorum Imperialis, including taking the mantle of the Ecclesiarchy. Using the power of both positions, Van Dyer set about establishing a galaxy-wide tyranny, subservient to his insane demands. A few Inquisitors had tried to warn of the impending catastrophe, but to most of their comrades, the seemingly petty machinations of a single High Lord had appeared inconsequential when compared with the threat arising in the halo stars. With his Fritaris Templars, a corruption of the Imperial Fleet and Imperial Guard, 
Van Dyer attempted to impose strict rules of behaviour on the populace of the Segmentum Solar and beyond. Deviation in ritual and belief was ruthlessly crushed, while dogma was enforced, proclaiming the semi-divinity of Van Dyer himself. Many that have read of these terrible times have wondered how the Inquisition could have allowed it to happen. To understand this, one must look at two things, an oversight of the importance of the ministorum and the temporal power it wielded, and a resurgence in pro-resurrectionism around the world of Dimamar. For the first millennia of the age of the Imperium, a certain inquisitors had become fixated upon the resurrection of the Emperor by restoring or strengthening his crippled mortal body. With the purge initiated by von Dressen and Bygden, resurrectionism had become an isolated, almost extinct philosophy. However, as the centuries passed, those inquisitors that were intrigued by the possibility of resurrection, but weary both of the dangers associated with and the prohibitions placed upon pursuing such an agenda, a different approach was taken. These scattered individuals carried out their works in secret to begin with, weary of anti-resurrectionist sentiments throughout the Inquisition. However, as the studies of several progressed and they came into contact with one another, a tangential philosophy was born, the Incarnationists. The principles of Incarnationism were simply yet eloquently penned by Theodore the Questioning in the works titled Musings Upon the Will of the Emperor. The Emperor walks among us. He chooses his vessels to do his work, as he has done so since time began. The rotting carcass maintained in the Golden Throne is not the Emperor, for he travels abroad, tending to his divine will, instilling his power into those that have been chosen. But what if the Emperor could be granted a body that does not wither and die? that could be his vessel for all eternity to come. I believe that such a thing is possible, that the Emperor yet waits for his new body to be found or created. In essence, a new Emperor will be created to lead mankind to its destiny and conquest of the galaxy. Though the Incarnationists were a fledgling faction, their numbers included not only several well-placed and highly respected Inquisitor Lords, such as Theodry, uh, but also a number of young, uh, dynamic inquisitors that were keen to be proactive in an organisation that had become increasingly dogmatic as it had grown and become more established. Thus it was that before he came to prominence among the rest of the Imperium, Sebastian Thor was well known to several agents of the Inquisition. Ever interested in tales of sainthood and remarkable individuals, a number of incarnationists were drawn to the world of Dimamar, even before the rise of Van Dyer and his reign of blood. At a young age, Thor was noted not for his physical size or skill, but for his presence, charisma, and oratory ability, talents some inquisitors believed that verged on supernatural. As was usual in such circumstances, Thor was closely observed, to detect the taint of chaos or alien influence or mutation in his remarkable skills, but was found to be resoundingly pure, totally pure, which in itself raised eyebrows amongst the Incarnationists. The excitement of the Incarnationists 
was felt by other members of the Inquisition, and so it was that those who were not perturbed by growing stories of ancient pyramids at the galaxy's edge were caught up in the growing interest in Dimamar, though few would ever realise it. The rise of Sebastian Thor not only halted Van Dyer's reign, but was also partly responsible for it being allowed to start in the first place. As the reign of blood continued, and Thor spoke out against Van Dyer, the Inquisition were content to aid him by shadowy means, but otherwise left him be, interested to see whether this potential divine vessel would provide some kind of key to them. As evidence of this marked fate grew, such as Thor's astounding ability to generate such great faith in those around him that it could conjure or quell warp storms, the Incarnationists had found themselves a new focus. While before they had looked for all manner of vessels that the Emperor might inhabit, they began to focus on the saintly human beings that might provide the final answer. They became known as Thorians. With their emphasis on finding a natural human receptacle, close work with the burgeoning Ordo Hereticus and their own devout policies of demon hunting and anti-possession rituals, the Thorians were regarded as stoic, pro-imperial inquisitors, and thus gained wide acceptance, even if their number was relatively small at first. The principles of the God Incarnate were written in M40 by Inquisitor Halston, and were the compiled dissertations of several Thorian inquisitors from the Tiberius Conclave. Though not widely known amongst even the Inquisition, these principles can be said to be part of the foundation of the Inquisition and its mission. With this knowledge under their control and a great determination to destroy the Emperor's enemies, the Thorians had come to be regarded as one of the most puritanical factions, even though their philosophy was once perhaps the most heretical of all. The principles of the God Incarnate are as follows. The Emperor really is a God. His ascension after the fight with Horus is very real. Like the other gods, he exists within the warp, and in essence he is the God of humanity. The one limitation to any god is that to have power of the physical world, they must rely upon mortals to do their work. The Emperor is in fact the greatest example of this. The galaxy-spanning Imperium is merely the material instrument of the Emperor. In a similar fashion, the Chaos Gods must have champions, possess worshippers, or temporarily create physical manifestations in the form of demons. At the bottom line, the warp is merely a reflection of the material world, and without mortals, none of the gods would exist. All of the existing background points towards the gods and other warp entities a craving after physical universe. However, what if a god could become a physical incarnation? As a man, in this case the emperor, can become a god, it stands to reason a god can become a man. This is the idea of the God Incarnate, the physical vessel for God in the material world. The idea of the God Incarnate is that there will be a certain individual or individuals who will allow this to happen. A God could invest their power into the mortal body and literally become a living God, 
commonly known amongst Thorians as divine avatars. Without being restricted to the warp, and therefore restricted to the manipulation of crass, mortal pawns, what power would a god have? One can imagine that humanity would be doomed if one of the divine avatars were to become the incarnation of a chaos god. Similarly, the idea of a god incarnate is not restricted to humans. The Eldar are striving to create a new god to defeat Slanesh, and have done so, it appears, while a god incarnate of Gork or Mork would be terrible. However, possibly an even greater threat to the Imperium, and the reason why the god incarnate is such a secret that only the Inquisition know of it, not even the High Lords of Terror know, is that it would be possible to reincarnate the Emperor into a living being again. As far as many of the Inquisition are concerned, the second coming of the Emperor would be a bad thing. This is quite an understandable position, really, and springs from uncertainty. If the Emperor were to become a god incarnate, what would happen to the Astronomicon? What would be humanity's reaction to having their god walking among them? Would the Imperium be torn apart by war as believers and unbelievers in the Second Coming clashed? If the Emperor were in physical form, could he be killed again? Then if so, would he be destroyed forever, exposing humanity to the many perils that the Emperor protects them from? Would the Emperor be destroyed if things went wrong? If the Divine Avatar was, shall we say, unsuitable? All in all, many of the Inquisition would rather see the status quo sustained. It is the real task of the Inquisition to seek out possible divine avatars and either kill them, control them, or study them, according to their personal philosophy. Over 10,000 years, they have gathered information about what to look for to indicate a possible divine avatar. Under the cover of rooting out heretics, witches, and mutants, some Inquisitors are searching for individuals that show signs of divine avatar-like properties. The Magi the original philosophical descendants of Moriana, are doing the same thing. Only, rather than wishing to suppress the god incarnate, they want to bring it about. Some of the Magi may be trying to create a god incarnate of the Chaos Gods, out of selfish hope to either be the divine avatar themselves, or by earning eternal favour of their god, and by being the most loyal of servants. Others may be trying to reincarnate the Emperor, seeing this as the true way forward for humanity. So we have the Inquisitors and the Magi both questing after the same thing, but for very different reasons, an eternity of secret conflict. The myths and legends surrounding the God Incarnate tell of the coming of the new God amidst great upheaval, strife and war. Just as revelations lay down the horror of the Second Coming, or Ragnarok heralds the end of the world, so, too, will the god incarnate's arrival be preceded by momentous events. There are many inquisitors that believed the end of the 41st millennium is just such a time with such tumultuous circumstances. For instance, Gaskell's big war, the multiple hive fleets attacking the Imperium, the reawakening of the Necron Terre, and a growing Adaptus Mechanicus schism were all indications of growing turmoil and strife. They did not reckon with the fall of Cadia, of course. Similarly, there are indicators that point towards who the divine avatar or avatars will be. 
Some are shrouded in myth and legends, as you'd expect. Some of them are as simple as ten ways to recognize the divine avatar. For instance, he shall have a great doom upon his brow. He shall be a witch of great power. He shall be altered in the physical form. He shall be able to talk and walk with the animals, and so on and so forth. Nobody knows all of the signs, and part of the reason for the Inquisition hunting down all the psychers, aliens, and mutants they can is to study them, to find out what they can about these individuals so that they might better understand the type of person or persons who could become a divine avatar. The cardinal world of Galilanus Free lies some 400 light-years from Terra, and is often visited by pilgrims travelling to the Imperial Palace, one of the oldest worlds to have been incorporated into the Ministorum, it boasts not only huge palaces and cathedrals, but also an extensive catacomb of ancient tombs and vast reliquies. The bodies, or parts of them at least, of several saints are believed to reside on Galilianus Free, and guarded by a detachment of battle sisters. The planet had often been visited and investigated by inquisitors that subscribed to the Thorian philosophy, but it was the attention of one particular inquisitor that caused a rift between the ecclesiarchy officials of the world and the Inquisition that has yet to be closed. Young and headstrong for one of his position, Inquisitor Jorg Dag was eager to forward the Thorian cause. Not content to merely study the texts of his predecessors, he was possessed of the notion to make a great discovery that would raise the level of Thorian knowledge to a new level. Having seen or heard of the great many works embarked upon near Dimamar and Ophelia, he chose instead to perform his researches on Galilanus Free. In the past, several Thorian inquisitors had requested that the saint's remains be exhumed for examination, but the rulers of the cardinal world had refused. Not wishing to force the issue with the ecclesiarchy, these inquisitors had wisely decided to continue their studies elsewhere. Inquisitor Dag decided to conduct his investigations in a clandestine manner instead, not even notifying the Cardinal of his presence on his world. For several months, he and his agents infiltrated the catacombs and examined what they could of the ancient relics and corpses. Psychomancers in his entourage probed the bodies for clues as to the nature of the souls that had once inhabited them while extensive physical tests were also conducted on the corpses. Over this time, growing rumours of shadowy tomb robbers began to circulate until they reached the ears of the Cardinal himself, who heard them and acted. Dag and his followers were intercepted whilst attempting to exhume the body of St. Exilia, and a firefight broke out amongst the pillars and tunnels of the Chapel of Rest in which she was interred. Not wishing to have himself revealed, Dag fought back with lethal intent against the sisters of battle that had hunted him down, killing several of them before escaping into the catacombs. Shocked by his own actions, Dag realised the folly of his covert methods and with his warrior band quit the carnal world as soon as he could. He went on to become a confident and successful member of the Ordo Hereticus, spending his life in atonement for the rash actions of his early years. Tales still abound across the carnal world of ghoulish body-snatchers, believed by some to be dark cultists, by others to be flesh-eating demons or aliens.
There are some among Lothorians that believe that a divine avatar may never come about naturally, and it is their duty to devise a way to artificially create a host for the Emperor's soul. One such man is Inquisitor Darwin. In the latter years of the 41st millennium, he had gained something of a reputation for being an expert on such matters, having widely examined all manner of documentation regarding the Primarchs and Space Marines. However, few know of his studies whilst operating as part of the Ordo Sicarius, the group of Inquisitors that have spent their efforts watching the Officio Assassinorum, established after the perilous wars of vindication. It was, naturally some might say, the shapeshifters of the Calidus Temple that attracted the attention of Darin, as well as his usual duties, guarding against the misuse of the assassins and watching over their training, Darin spent much time examining the properties of the shape-altering drug polymorphine. Though few know the locations of the hidden assassins' temples, there is little that an Inquisitor cannot discover, and Darin became aware of the isolated Calidus training outpost on the second moon of Assyrian. Accompanied by a magus biologist of the Adeptus Mechanicus, Hexen Lurd, Darin travelled to the temple and invoked an inquisitorial quarantine. Cut off from interference, he and Magus Lurd began to experiment with polymorphine, using the trainees as their test subjects. Their aim was to create a hyperpolymorphine that could, when used on a psychically suitable subject, create, perhaps, a robust enough vessel for the Emperor. Much of this was carried out on a trial-and-error basis, and the horrors created by overstimulated polymorphine were lucky if they died swiftly. However, after several months and nearly two dozen test subjects, one of the assassin potentials survived a particular hybrid variant of polymorphine. Unbeknownst to Darin, Megas Lurd had no intention of simply handing over the results of the studies to the Inquisition. An armed force loyal to the Adeptus Mechanicus broke through the quarantine in an attempt to remove the successful subject to the nearest forge world for closer examination by the tech priests. Darin naturally struck back, and fighting broke out between the two forces within the temple. Already disturbed by the Inquisitor's practices and now alarmed that the Mechanicus were aware of the location of her temple, the Master Calidus that ran the facility joined the fighting, and a freeway struggle broke out. During the chaos of those weeks, the test subject, Acid Varanus, escaped. Using her polymorphine abilities, she managed to slip out from the grasp of all three parties and is to this day still unaccounted for. Lord Inquisitor Antogonus Balarodin, who led the subsequent investigation that saw Darin savagely censured for his actions and Magus Lurd executed for his treacherous behaviour, is still hunting the fugitive Calidus. As one can see from these few examples, and the history of the Thorians as a whole, the beliefs that have built into the Thorian philosophy can be manifested and acted upon in a number of different ways. As well as the Thorians, there are other resurrectionist and incarnationist factions, including splinter groups within the Thorians themselves. Here are a few examples of such groups. The Herosians. Despite the pogroms of the 35th millennium, the Herosian ideals have waxed and waned in popularity ever since the founding of the Inquisition. 
The Herosian ideal is quite simple, and yet also unpalatable for many inquisitors, even those with a resurrectionist outlook. Their assumption is that somehow the powers of chaos that manifested themselves in Horus might be harnessed for the creation of a divine avatar, or perhaps in the process of transferring the Emperor's soul from its current form into the body of a living god. Considered radical, except for themselves, the Herosians are few in number but fanatical in their cause. They tend to be older inquisitors, frustrated by the lack of answers provided by other resurrectionist theories, and therein lies the danger. Chaos and its power can never be viewed as a quick route to success, for in that direction lies damnation. Quite apart from the normal anti-resurrectionist arguments, many inquisitors view Herosians with suspicion out of fear that their dabbling with possession and warp intrusions endangers those around them and the Imperium in general. However, the most experienced Herosians are well-versed in the perils of the warp and chaos, and so are numbered amongst the most proficient and dedicated demon hunters in the entire Inquisition. Like all such philosophies, the Herosians must tread a path a longer precipice of dedicated service to the Imperium and the fulfilment of their researches. It is a path that most have trodden wisely, but not all Herosians have remained faithful and, perhaps like Moriana 10,000 years ago, succumbed to the lure of the Dark Powers. And a million beholders. While other incarnationist inquisitors believe that it is their duty to bring about the Emperor Incarnate, the Animolian Beholders believe that such thoughts skirt with hubris. Instead, they are perhaps the most conservative of all the Incarnationist factions, their goal being not to create the Emperor Incarnate, but to observe humanity and await his arrival. They see it as their job to prepare for this momentous event and to stand ready to offer whatever assistance may be needed at this great time. The predominant activity of the Anomolian Beholders is locating potential divine avatars and observing them. Only if they are convinced that the vessel is tainted will they destroy it. Much like the original Thorians, they are content to examine and research remarkable individuals for signs of potential or corruption. They are more zealous than most to follow up any sign or omen of a possible divine avatar and are amongst some of the most Travelled inquisitors in the galaxy. Anomolian beholders tend to be pragmatic, down-to-earth individuals after a lifetime of seeking wisdom and enlightenment, only to have their hopes thwarted time and again. They tend to take a longer view of matters, and despite numerous setbacks to achieving their goals, are always optimistic that the future may hold the answers. This has garnered them a reputation for being level-headed and reliable, and other inquisitors will often happily overlook their foibles in return for these better qualities. Ardentites Although not truly following a philosophy of resurrectionism or incarnationism, the Ardentites are best discussed alongside such factions. Their somewhat quirky belief is not widespread among the Inquisition, but had been persistent in various guises for several millennia either within the broader Thorian ideals or as a distinct faction in its own right. The Ardentites firmly believe in the basic principles of the Emperor Incarnate, but there the similarity with the Thorians ends. Rather than a single divine avatar, the Ardentites feel it is more likely that the power of the God Emperor 
is likely to manifest through a group of people, or more likely, the entirety of mankind. Given humanity's evolution towards being a psychic race, evidenced by a gradual but perceptible increase in mutation and psychic ability, and particularly since the creation of the Great Rift, it is the belief of the Ardentites that the ultimate plan of the Emperor was to protect mankind during this vulnerable stage by disseminating his power throughout humanity. So it is that the Ardentites do not concern themselves merely with remarkable individuals, but rather attempt to locate evidence of the Emperor's presence in any person expressing proof of talent or psychic ability. This is a vague, unsure process, for none can say what defines evidence of the Emperor's presence, though certainly there is no end of accounts of miraculous events that might be accounted for by intervention from the Emperor. Known sometimes by the rather derogatory title, of miracle chasers. Much of the disdain for Ardentites stems from the erratic behaviour of Inquisitor Varingian Thex, who spent two centuries during the 39th millennium attempting to prove the Ardentite theorems, but was unable to produce a shred of evidence. Having presented his findings at a conclave of his fellow Inquisitors, he was censured for dereliction of duty for devoting time and resources to his baseless beliefs. It is perhaps this defiance of defeat and a rebellious streak that characterises many Ardentites. They are widely regarded as eccentric individuals who see the work of the Emperor everywhere, but they also make great investigators, for they will often delve deeper and for longer than others, unwilling to make obvious conclusions from their discoveries, but to seek inner meanings and hidden motives in what they encounter. Saint Cassophili was a missionary with the Missionorus Galaxia in the early 41st millennium, spreading the teachings of the Ecclesiarchy to worlds in the southern Segmentum Pacifica. It was on the world of Elena III that he discovered minions of the Dark Gods at the heart of several of the feral societies on the world. With few resources to hand, Saint Cassophili did what he could to counter this endemic threat and laid the foundations for a full ecclesiarchy task force to continue his work. However, as he moved from settlement to settlement, preaching the word of the god-emperor, his foes began to take notice. Unable to bear such a threat to their power, the council of priests that ruled the world moved against him and had him captured and tortured to recant his errant beliefs. The chronicles of Cassophili tell of his arduous ordeal at the hands of the twisted priests, to the point at which he died from his wounds. Here the tale of St. Casophile may have ended, unknown and unrecorded, another pious missionary whose life had ended in the pursuit of his calling. Though Casophile died at the hands of his tormentors, something remarkable happened. Five days after his death, the body of the missionary was to be burned upon a sacrificial pyre to the dark gods. As the flames took hold of the tarred wood, Casophile roused himself and jumped from the fires, Miraculously brought back from the dead, Cassophili confronted his tormentors and the gathered crowd. The story of St. Cassophili's return spread quickly, and he led the people of Elena free against the priesthood. Such an occurrence would naturally attract the attention of the resurrectionist inquisitors, but the faction that have dedicated themselves to the study of Cassophili's story focus on one particular aspect of the saint's tale. In his later works, Cassophili writes of his experiences over the five days between death and resurrection. During this period, the saint tells of a bodiless, floating sensation 
in a gulf of sound and colour. He writes of a clamour of myriad voices, some whispering and others bellowing, swirling around him. He also speaks of a great light that suffused everything, which he believed to be the emperor. The fact that Cassifelli's soul returned to his body is not so much of a concern for the Cassifelians, for the basic assumption of all Thorian and related beliefs is that the psychic energy of an individual can pass to the warp and back. No, it is the fact that Cassifelli's writings tell of a place within the warp where these souls reside. Uh, that is the province of the Cassifelians. Knowing that demonic entities can broach the barriers between warp and real space, the Cassifelians dedicate their study to the transition of a human soul to their universe. They are profound experts of demonology with regard to ritual summoning as opposed to accidental or malicious possession. With this knowledge, they seek to devise a way to bring forth the soul of a deceased man or woman, and if this proves successful, it will be a major step towards creating the means by which the Emperor's soul can be invested into a suitable mortal form. Rather than the general and rather isolated studies of other resurrectionist factions, the Cassifelians openly embrace new ideas on their theories and work closely with inquisitors of different leanings, gleaning what they can from the experiences of others. In particular, they are often found working in conjunction with an inquisitor who follows the philosophy of the Animalian beholders. For the Cassifelians focus on the souls of the dead, while the Animalian beholders study the souls of the living. Revivicators Unusually for a resurrectionist cult, the revivicators have few ties with the Ministorum. Their focus is directed towards the transition of the soul to the warp at the point of death. In particular, they study the means by which this can be slowed, halted, and ultimately returned. This study takes them to battlefields and plague areas to conduct their investigations on those close to the final death. They are also frequenters of tombs and mausoleums, hence a certain amount of disrespect for the practices of the ecclesiarchy. Known as ghouls or ravens for their somewhat morbid practices, the revivicators are also known to have learned much from the capture of various Eldar over the centuries. In particular, they find the principle of the Eldar spirit stone intriguing, and have, on occasions, attempted to replicate the practice of capturing a departing soul. So far, such attempts have proved wholly unsuccessful, for mankind's psychic technology is far inferior to the psychic engineering properties of Eldar Wraithbone. There are also those that have read Van Hinkle's treatise on the soul theft methods of Eldar pirates, penned by the Inquisitor Lord in the late 39th millennium. This detailed manuscript contains Van Hinkle's report on interrogations of captured Dark Eldar, as well as collating information from any other sources previously scattered in various libraries and data files throughout the Inquisition fortresses and stations of the galaxy. The least scrupulous revivicators have attempted to repeat the torturous practices of the Dark Eldar, usually on heretics and other criminals, though not exclusively so. Few amongst the Inquisition know of the grisly dungeons staffed by telepaths and wired with arcane machinery for the detection and extraction of psychic energy. Ultimately, it is the goal of the revivicators to study the Golden Throne itself and perhaps alter its workings, 
so that the Emperor's body might be restored. To this end, it is not only the passage of the soul to the warp that the revivigators study, but also the process by which a corpse may be maintained in a state ready for such a reinfusion of the soul. Access to this knowledge and technology means that revivicators often live far longer than other inquisitors. The oldest being Inquisitor Lord Varanev, who was shot and killed whilst hale and healthy at the age of 763. So, the Thorians, with their particular areas of expertise and interest, are naturally drawn towards certain aspects of the Inquisition's role within and outside the Imperium. In the pursuit of the Divine Vessel, the Emperor Incarnate, or research into the ways in which these might be brought about, the Thorians are naturally inclined to specialise their activities towards not only the Warp, but also the Ecclesiarchy and its many saints. However, the Thorian philosophy has also trod a fine line between orthodoxy and heresy, and so many Thorian prefer to work alone, and so do not have access to the higher organisation and resources of any of the Ordos. Any cooperation they do enjoy, either with other Thorians or Inquisitors of a different philosophy, is quite often on an ad hoc and temporary basis. This situation is quite often reciprocated by other Inquisitors, although Thorianism is now a widely held and accepted faction within the Inquisition. Inquisitors have long memories, and records go back even longer, to a time when the predecessors of the Thorians were not so welcome. The Thorians themselves are always awaiting a change in feeling towards them, and thus do not enter into confidence lightly with others. These factors mean the integration of a Thorian into one of the Ordos, which are hidden organisations within the Inquisition, not known to the uninitiated, normally occurs only if a Thorian already within the Ordo actively seeks out others of a like-minded philosophy. Thus, the Thorians form a sub-group within the Ordo, clustered in scattered locations where they have identified each other and feel more confident in discussing their work with others. Even allowing for this, the focus of the Thorians in certain areas means that they can rise to positions of considerable prominence within an Ordo, as several have done since the Age of Apostasy. There are even records that show that Thorians have been nominated to the position of inquisitorial representative, one of the High Lords of Terror, sitting on the Senatorum Imperialis. There are those that have been worried in the past that giving the Thorians such potential power, on Terror itself, the seat of the Emperor, is not only dangerous for the Inquisition, but the Imperium itself. Thus, such positions have generally been short-lived as opponents have gathered support and opinion has been swayed against the Thorians. On the whole, the Thorians are less disposed towards the prosecution of their duties within the Imperium itself and are more concerned with external activities such as demonic possession and alien technology. In the past, the divergence of the Thorians' activities and pursuit of knowledge have caused friction and even conflict within the Ordos, though perhaps no more than those Inquisitors of other beliefs. The somewhat broad approach that many Thorians have in attempting to find the Divine Vessel or the Emperor Incarnate means that should a Thorian Inquisitor become inducted into one of the Ordos, it is not unusual for him or her to swiftly move into another Ordo as well. In this way, for example, 
Athorian may spend a few years as a demon hunter of the Ordo Malleus before his research or investigations lead him to some alien technology used to protect against demons, and the Inquisitor is drawn into the organization of the Ordo Xenos. A Thorian that does have access to one of the Ordos is fortunate, for their self-appointed task requires knowledge of many different disciplines. From Techno-Arcana to Demonomancy, Ecclesiarchy history to Xenos psychic abilities. As the Ordos exist as a means of sharing knowledge and resources, a Thorian that can access the accumulated wisdom and manpower of one or more of the Ordos is much more likely to interconnect the disparate strands of the Thorian philosophy and make a meaningful step forward in theory, or uncover some hidden clue to the nature of the Emperor Incarnate. Most Thorians that enter one of the Ordos will be demon hunters in the Ordo Malleus. Their predisposition towards the interaction of the warp and humanity makes them natural candidates as well as accomplished experts in the field of demonic possession and summoning. However, Thorians can also be at odds with the greater goals of the Ordo Malleus, sometimes bordering on radicalism. While no Thorian would ever condone the use of chaos and its powers to bring about the Emperor Incarnate, not since the conflict-filled days of the Herosians, it is not uncommon for Thorians to wish to study their adversary a little bit too much. All Inquisitors believe that knowledge is power, of course, and often the best weapon against their various foes. But Thorians have been known on occasion to endanger their mission and those they are sworn to protect in pursuit of gleaning some extra nugget of wisdom regarding the interaction of the warp and real space. This is counteracted by the exceptional wealth of knowledge that a single Thorian can bring to the Ordo. In regards to demon hunting, the study of summoning rituals, and the signs of possession, the Thorians are unequaled masters. Not only this, but more psychers are drawn to Thorianism in comparison to any other philosophy. And though psychers are vulnerable to demonic intrusion and manipulation, they also form the best defense against interlopers from the war. The combination of these two factors makes Thorians impressive and very successful demon hunters. It is not perhaps for the power of the Grey Knights that the Thorian is drawn to the Ordo Malleus, but for access to millennia of demon lore. The archives of the Ordo Malleus, hidden in secret libraries and collections across the Imperium, are a treasure trove for any Thorian. With some records dating back to the establishment of the Imperium, the knowledge of the Ordo Malleus, should any one individual ever be able to access it all, contains invaluable information regarding the relationship between mortals and the war. Though dedicated to the destruction of demons, the reports of demonic possessions, summoning arcana, and banishments are, to the Thorians, merely links in a complex mesh of data that contains important revelations on the divine vessel and the emperor incarnate. While other inquisitors delve into these archives with a view to expanding their armory against the immortal entities of the warp, the Thorian approaches them with an eye to weaving them together into a coherent series of theses that may provide the final link in that mesh of knowledge and allow them to create or discover a divine vessel. The Thorians also scour these records with another purpose, to rule out a horrifying possibility 
that the Emperor Incarnate has arrived and been destroyed, mistaken for a demonic manifestation. Though the thought of such a thing occurring terrifies the Thorians, they are not so confident that the misguided zeal of others would have endangered the Emperor's divine will. Even within the Ordo Malleus, the activities of Thorians are closely watched by others. The line between noble vocation and the perils of radicalism is notoriously thin. The history of the Ordo has several occurrences of Thorians or members of earlier resurrectionist factions that have strayed over the line. The quest for wisdom is always susceptible to self-interest, and for Thorians with access to the vast repositories of knowledge that the Ordo Malleus holds, it is a constant discipline to maintain their inquisitorial duties whilst furthering their personal cause. In comparison to the Ordo Malleus, there are very few Thorians within the ranks of the alien hunters of the Ordo Xenos. The vast majority of alien races, above and beyond their physical threat to the Imperium, hold little interest for Thorians. However, there are a few that have specialised in the alien menace, where these Thorians see possible answers to the questions posed by the possible existence of the Divine Vessel. Of those alien races that attract the attention of the Thorians, the Eldar undergo the most scrutiny and investigation by far. As masters of psychic technology, the Eldar may hold secrets to the method by which the Emperor's soul may be returned from the warp into the real universe. This alone makes the enigmatic aliens worthy of attention. Once a Thorian can make the mental decision that alien influence might be important to the creation or location of the Emperor Incarnate, the Eldar become a natural field of investigation. Throughout their history, what little is known to the Inquisition and society, the Eldar's knowledge of the warp and its inhabitants far surpasses even the gathered wisdom of the Ordo Malleus. If he is of a mind to look into the Eldar, a Thorian Inquisitor can find the answers to many of the riddles that confront him. The existence of spirit stones prove that, given sufficient knowledge, souls can reside out of warp space. The method by which this transference takes place and the materials from which a waystone is made has eluded Thorians for centuries, yet there are those that endeavour to uncover these secrets. If spirit stones were not motive enough to dedicate a lifetime of research to this advanced race, then the existence of the Avatars is an even greater lure. If the legends of the Eldar are to be believed, these demonic manifestations are each a part of the ancient Eldar war god, Akela Mensha Kane. Each Avatar is, it is believed, a soul fragment of the Eldar god, although they are not possessed of the magnitude of power that the Emperor Incarnate would hold they may provide the proof needed that a divine vessel could indeed house the soul of the Emperor in the corporeal universe. With such possibilities open to them, some Thorians see the resources of the Ordo Xenos as invaluable to their studies. It is believed, though has never been documented, that the great Inquisitor Lord Sevek was once a Thorian, and it was this that led him on his quest to penetrate the secrets of the fabled Black Library of the Harlequins. That he succeeded is no small testament to his resolve. However, given Sivak's uh, more xenophobic behaviour and philosophy after his admittance to the Black Library, it seems that some questions are best left unanswered. It is certain that Sivak no longer has any time for the Thorianism and has, in typically enigmatic fashion, spoken out against the aims of the philosophy. It is not just the Eldar that can lure the Thorian into the Ordo Xenos, 
as rewarding as the possibilities that they do present. Within the warp there exists alien creatures that are neither mortal nor demonic. Investigations of these aliens is not as alluring as the demonic, of course, but methods by which they can influence and breach the barriers between warp space and real space are an obvious source of knowledge for the Thorians. Enslavers, Psychnuin, vampires, and other warp creatures are able to exert their will into the real universe, and many of them are capable of transgressing the boundaries that separate the two. If only to avoid intrusion by these creatures on a divine vessel, some Thorians have dedicated their lives to a greater understanding of these hideous creatures. Both enslavers and Psychnuin manifest physical influence over hosts in the material universe. Unlike demon in possession, the pulsing, fleshy warp gates of the enslavers are an actual break across the barriers of warp space. Similarly, the eggs laid into the brains of their victims by the wasp-like Psychnuin are a physical form teleported across those same barriers. If physical objects can be displaced across the dimensions in this fashion, perhaps they hold the key to how the Thorians might be able to bring forth the Emperor Incarnate. As well as the creatures themselves, the Thorians are interested in the properties of the hosts they pick. A strong psychic connection, as with all warp manifestations, is the single linking factor, but Thorians within the Ordo Xenos believe that other traits that make a host suitable for enslavement, for example, may aid in understanding the nature of the divine vessel. No Thorian Inquisitor has so far been able to retrieve, for study, a living specimen mid-infection, but the resources of the Ordo Xenos may yet provide this vital piece of evidence. It is the threat posed by the creatures to a divine vessel that also occupies the minds of the alien-hunting Thorians. Wards and technology that prevent against psychic manifestations are under constant research by the Ordo Xenos, amongst their many other fields of study. If reliable, portable containment fields or other technology can be constructed that could protect a divine vessel from vampiric corruption or enslavement, then the chances of the Emperor Incarnate manifesting are greatly increased. Or so say the Thorians. Many Thorians believe that the secret of the Emperor Incarnate exists beyond current human knowledge. And though their duties may deal with the threat of the traitor and heretic, there is little for them to study to further their cause. It is for this reason that the Ordo Hereticus is a rare choice for a Thorian Inquisitor. Most of those Thorians that are part of the Ordo Hereticus exploit the position for one particular reason. The Ordo's relationship with the Ecclesiarchy. The history of the Thorians is inextricably linked to the Ecclesiarchy. They are, after all, named after the most prominent Ecclesiarch in the history of the Ministorum. It is not just this historical connection that draws a few Thorians to seek out the Ordo Hereticus. There is a much more practical purpose. The ancient connection between the Ordo Hereticus and the Ministorum grants those Inquisitors in the Ordo access to the Ecclesiarchy's records. There is a vast wealth of information contained in the annals of the Ecclesiarchy, original copies of the Book of Saints, various incarnations of the Litanies of Faith and other doctrinal material. In particular, theological musings on the nature of the Emperor 
and accounts of the activities of saints and living saints are all fuel to the Thorian fire. On the whole, Thorians do not necessarily agree with the Ministorum and its multitudinous sects with regard to their view of the Emperor. Inquisitors are, by their nature, pragmatic and not given to fanciful ideologies, whereas the dogma of the Ministorum has in the past caused grief to the Thorians. Inquisitors, should they work openly, attract fear and suspicion, even from the innocent, and in an organisation as large as the Ecclesiarchy, there will always be those that would rather the Inquisition were not operating in their vicinity. This hidden resistance can often be avoided by members of the Ordo Hereticus, as many of the Ecclesiarchy see them as allies rather than foes. As with the Ordo Malleus and Ordo Xenos, the resources of the Ordo Hereticus allow a Thorian Inquisitor a vast sum of knowledge and expertise. In conjunction with the studies of Thor himself, the tales of other famous members of the Ministorum are scrutinised and checked in the search for signs of the Emperor Incarnate or a Divine Vessel. By cross-checking these records with findings of Thorians in other specialities, an Inquisitor can determine if such Remarkable individuals were simply gifted, perhaps possessed of psychic powers, or influenced by other, darker entities. If these avenues of investigation are exhausted or prove inconclusive, there remains the possibility that these saints were indeed divine vessels and perhaps partook of a portion of the Emperor's power. It is not only those that have been loyal and faithful that attract the attention of the Thorians. The Ordo Hereticus is, after all, devoted to rooting out corruption and disloyalty, not to the praising of martyrs and saints. It is the belief of some Thorians that exceptionally gifted individuals may have been mistakenly prosecuted as threats to the Imperium, when in fact they were actually showing signs of potential divinity. For many long centuries, resurrectionism, or incarnationism, was suppressed, or even viewed as heretical. In these periods, the beliefs and learning of the pre-Thorian factions was destroyed or declared perdita. It is the belief of some Thorians that during these times of ignorance and denial, divine vessels, or at least potential divine vessels, may have been mistaken for psychers or the possessed. The Ordo Hereticus itself is as old as the Thorians, dating from the age of apostasy, but the vocation of the witch-hunter dates back much further. The records of the Ordo therefore predate the investigations of the Thorians themselves by several millennia. Much of it contributed by incarnationists and resurrectionists from bygone centuries. To gain access to these old records and reports is reward enough for the Thorian willing to balance his studies with the investigation of heretics and witches. It is also, of course, the duty of the Ordo Hereticus to hunt down psychers. They are, after all, the Emperor's witch-hunters. Psychic ability is closely linked to the divine vessel by the Thorians, for it is psychers that are closest to the warp, and therefore in contact with the Emperor's soul. The Ordo Hereticus therefore provides valuable information on psychers and their powers, and its network of agents can be used by a Thorian to locate psychers that also display other traits associated with a divine vessel, or the Emperor Incarnate. Being assisted in the investigation of these individuals allows a Thorian Inquisitor a greater chance of actually discovering one or the other, should they actually exist, of course. Thorians, who 
themselves do not have psychic powers may therefore enter the service of the Ordo Hereticus in order to gain a greater understanding of these mystical abilities, perhaps the better to protect where the divine vessel may appear, or just to have a better level of empathy with those they are seeking. In particular, the most powerful psychers, those graded as alpha level, are the greatest threat the Ordo Hereticus faces. They are also the most likely candidates for divine vessel status, for if a body can contain the power of an alpha level psyker, individuals capable of destroying battle titans or controlling whole worlds, uh, then it follows that the Emperor's divine essence may also be contained within such mortal bodies. One of the Ordos Minoris, the Ordo Sicarius, is responsible for investigating and controlling the Officio Assassinorum. By ancient decree, no imperial assassin may be deployed without the consent of the High Lords of Terror. This is, of course, immensely impractical, and quite often an inquisitor of the Ordo Sicarius will sanction the Officio Assassinorum under the guise of an edict from Terror. While some believe this to be an abuse of their power in a galaxy-spanning civilization, such measures are essential to maintain a level of response required by threats to mankind. Every assassin is selected from a young age, often from feral worlds or the scholar progenium, and trained for many years. The selection process is even more rigorous for assassins than it is for space marines, and perhaps only one in several million candidates will finally fulfil their training and become an officio assassinorum operative. It is this perfection of mind and body that is the lure of the Thorian. Not only does the Ordo Sicarius, through the Officio Assassinorum, have access to the historical records of such remarkable individuals, but also is formed in such a way as to allow the identification of possible recruits. A Thorian, in the Ordo Sicarius, can monitor such activities and, if he or she feels inappropriate, investigate potential subjects for signs of divine vessel suitability. There is another much less manipulative reason for Thorians to operate within the Ordo Sicarius. Thorians are often drawn to powerful individuals who may well turn out to be demonically possessed, alpha-level psychers or warp-infected. Such people are dangerous adversaries, and an Inquisitor that can draw upon the Officio Assassinorum is much better positioned to deal with these threats. Many a Thorian has ordered the assassination of an important leader, having discovered that they are not a divine vessel but in fact, something more menacing. The last reason why a Thorian may well end up within the Ordo Sicarius is one of opposites. They believe that to achieve greater understanding of the divine vessel, one can study the most repulsive unholy aberrations within humanity, those with the pariah gene. Pariahs are individuals that not only have no presence within warp space, but actually have a negative impact. They are psychic leeches that absorb warp energy, not only from psychers, but also from normal humans and other creatures. This ability to draw out psychic energy is central to the Thorian cause, and an understanding of the pariah gene may well assist in the creation of divine vessel, or at least further knowledge in the pursuit of the means to bring the emperor back from the war. The Order Sicarius is responsible for overseeing the Calexus Temple of the Officio Assassinorum, whose operatives are uniquely pariahs. Between the Ordo Sicarius and Calexus Temple, a Thorian Inquisitor has a much greater chance of encountering, perhaps even uh, studying, an untouchable. The chances of coming across a pariah who occurs once in 
several billions amongst humanity, are virtually non-existent. However, a member of the Ordo Sicarius can gain access to such individuals every few years and study them at length. One of the smallest and most specialised organisations within the Inquisition, the Ordo Sepulatorum, operates around the Eye of Terror and is dedicated to investigating a specific threat, the Zombie Plague. Although occurrences of plague zombies have been recorded across the Imperium for many millennia, it is in the wake of the plague fleets of the Chaos Champion Typhus that they have grown in number to the point where their presence is a threat to the Imperium in their own right. Before Abaddon's 13th Black Crusade, the incidence of zombie plague around the Cadian system dramatically increased. This was noticed by several agents of the Inquisition, who were soon in communication. Then within a few years, several more Thorians, most notably Inquisitor Agastri, were investigating the zombie plague, and the Ordo Sepulatorum was formed. As a combination of both chaos infection as well as a physical malaise, the zombie plague has always been on the agenda for Thorians to study, but its unpredictable nature and sporadic occurrences meant that it took luck or a tremendous amount of patience to capture plague zombies for investigation. With the advent of the Eye of Terror-related epidemic, inquisitors that had previously been thwarted in their missions to achieve specimens were suddenly confronted with a plethora of test subjects. The zombie plague physically degenerates those it infects, and infection can occur in many ways, including psychically, but maintains a portion of the life essence of the victim even after physical death occurs. The parallels between zombie plague and the operations of the Golden Throne have not been overlooked. The increased study of the zombie plague has led many Thorians to believe that, in its unaltered form, it may well provide several clues to the nature of the Emperor's life in death. But all forms of the faith virus so far examined have undergone mutation. That the plague zombies still possess a warp reflection has been confirmed, not only by psychic investigation, but also by the fact that several psychers have been able to control these creatures. Psychic manipulation is normally only possible through the warp ego of a creature. The possibility that the plague zombie infection is an offshoot of Golden Throne technologies is not widely supported, and the common theory is that it was spawned by Dark Mechanicus within the Eye of Terror. Much more rare is the Obliterator virus, which again is a chaos-born contagion that combines elements of physical corruption with mental disruption, allowing the psychic manipulation of technology. The Obliterator virus allows for humans to interact and meld with machinery, not only on the physical plane, but also on the psychic and spiritual level. In combination with what has been gleaned from Eldar technology, the existence of the Obliterator virus lends itself to the idea that an augmented divine vessel could be artificially created, should a non-corruptible version of the virus ever be developed. This, frankly, strikes me as insanity. The particular beliefs and goals of the Forians are more specific than many other factions, and so do not directly clash or contradict the belief of these other factions. Thus it is down to individual Inquisitors and their personal activities whether they find common cause or conflict with other Inquisitors. Since the formation of the Thorians, Resurrectionists and Incarnationists have endeavoured to be more open about their agenda. However, Millennia of mutual suspicion and conflict leave their mark for a long time, 
and Nathorians do not cooperate well with inquisitors with a differing philosophy. This suspicion occasionally gives rise to conflict in itself, regardless of the actual motivations of the Thorian involved. Similarly, Thorians are very likely to be secretive about their work and may end up in conflict with the goals of another inquisitor unintentionally, even when no direct clash of goals exists. A Thorian has an inherent degree of paranoia about their ideals and so is quick to assume the worst of others. The theological connotations of the Thorian agenda can also give rise to conflict of another kind. The majority of Inquisitors are pragmatic with regard to the Emperor, viewing the Imperial Creed of the Adeptus Ministorum as a useful tool to control the Imperium at best, or a distraction at worst. However, there are a small number of Inquisitors, normally those inculcated into the Ecclesiarchy's beliefs through the Scholar Progenium before becoming Inquisitors, that object to the aims of the Thorians on religious grounds. These Inquisitors tend to form pro-Ecclesiarchy factions and promote the Ministorum as the best means for reinforcing the faith of the Imperium and using this as a defence against the wiles of chaos. To them, the thought of interfering with the Emperor by any means, whether it risks him or not, is a violation of the most fundamental kind. Such theological differences are thankfully few and far between, because they tend to run deep. The pro-ministorum inquisitors feel it's an obligation to protect the emperor, while the Thorians will do anything to bring about the emperor incarnate. Conflicts between those striving for these two goals are short and often bloody and brutal. The Thorians, on the whole, are considered a Puritan faction, after casting off the last taint of the Herosians during the Age of Apostasy. To this end, they are naturally opposed to the use of chaos in any form. This, of course, runs counter to their goals of studying the interaction of warp space and real space, and thus they must try to observe such things as they occur over the normal course of events, as opposed to those that artificially engineer such situations to increase their knowledge. However, the Thorians are a lot more lenient when the matter turns to alien technology and contact. This does not set well with other factions who see aliens as just a greater threat to mankind as the treacherous and the demonic. To Thorians, the higher goals and the greater gain of the Emperor incarnate is far more important than any temporary weakness of will regarding the Xenos threat. They expound the idea that the ultimate threat is the lure of chaos, and the only means by which this can be fully thwarted is to bring about the Emperor Incarnate. The petty machinations of aliens is little cause for attention. Though they expend great energy and devote much time to the study of chaos, the Thorians do not believe that chaos itself can ever be harnessed for the ultimate benefit of mankind. Through their studies, they believe that the spirit of the Emperor may be brought forth again, in order to destroy the threat of chaos once and for all. This is in itself enough reason to cause conflict with the Xenthites, but it is by far the lesser reason. The true enmity between the two factions can be traced back through to their origins and the divisions between the Resurrectionists and the Herosians. There are some that believe that Inquisitor Master Zaranchek Xanthus was hunted down and executed, not for his dabbling in chaos per se, but for pro-Herosian leanings although this was never proven.
The ongoing cooperation between Xanthites and the few Herosians that remain to this day is more than enough to create an antipathy towards the Thorians, a hostility that is reciprocated in full by the Thorians themselves. More than any other faction, the Xanthites distrust the Thorian motives, accusing them of simply hiding behind their new Puritan outlook. Xanthites see the Thorian philosophy as a betrayal of the original resurrectionists and a denial of their true goal. The Xanthites see the Thorian-Herosian conflict as an extension of the same divide that exists between themselves and most other Inquisitors. Such divisions can only be deepened by experience rather than lessened. The Thorians would see all Herosians eradicated and the philosophy buried once and for all, because the Herosians act as a constant reminder of the Thorians' wayward past. Such a conviction has been instilled into generations of Thorian Inquisitors to the point that many see any kind of purposeful manipulation of chaos rather than simply its observations as a tell-tale sign of latent Herosian tendencies. This vindictiveness is repaid in full by those that become Xanthites, for they see the burning of Xanthos as a martyrdom made at the hands of the Resurrectionists. They believe the Thorians to be the latest in a long line of self-deluding, short-sighted meddlers that should share the vision of Xanthos to achieve their goals, rather than continue to destroy the great works of the Xanthite founder. So single-minded is this animosity that it is one of the few things that can distract a Thorian from the pursuit of his other duties. The merest hint of Herosian activity is enough to suspect the involvement of a genuine Herosian. And the Thorians hold many conclaves to discuss how to destroy this menace for the rest of eternity. So opposed to each other are the Xanthites and the Thorians that such conflicts almost always end in physical clashes. Given the long history of both beliefs, it is inevitable that the relationship between them is littered with internecine fighting, blood and death. Each further sacrifice made by an Inquisitor in his or her cause only serves to further reinforce the entrenched positions of the two factions. The worst case of this conflict was the Lascar Purge, where over a dozen Inquisitors of both factions and their warrior bands had gathered over a course of time, determined to kill their foes. Many innocents were caught up in the crossfire until kill teams, dispatched by Inquisitor Lords, after notifying the High Lords of Terror themselves, wiped out both sides in the conflict. Large parts of the underhive populations of Lascar were also eliminated to prevent news of the internal strife within the Inquisition ever becoming known outside of its operatives. Though much less embedded in their philosophies, there is a continuing and growing enmity between the Thorians and the recongregators. The cause of this contention is not the aims or differences in belief of the two factions, but rather their methodology. The Thorians expend much time and power in locating possible divine vessels that might perhaps be an avatar of the Emperor Incarnate. In contrast, the recongregators often spend much of their time manipulating important individuals, as well as numerous demagogues, agitators and rebellious visionaries. There have been many reported occasions of the Thorians and recongregators coming into conflict over these individuals, each wishing to make use of them to further their own ends. It is a source of much frustration to the Thorians when they have spent much of their resources investigating a particular person who might perhaps have shown innate leadership, foresight and charisma, only to find out that their potential divine vessel 
has gained these abilities simply through the manipulation on their behalf by an inquisitor interested in recongregation. On the other side, the recongregators know that there are those amongst the Inquisition that think their theories of destabilizations and deconstruction are very dangerous and prefer to work as secretly as possible. The unmitigated prying they suffer at the hands of the Thorians, as the recongregators see it, jeopardizes work and plans that are often mean decades in preparation and execution. So, it is that simple. Human exasperation can set these two factions against one another, with disastrous consequences to both. Secrecy, compounded by a clash of goals, often turns into individual paranoia or vindictiveness, distracting inquisitors from their important vocations. It is a dilemma that has no obvious or lasting resolution, for while the Thorians continue their quest in search of the divine vessel, the recongregators continue to manipulate influential men and women across the Imperium. Two factions' paths will cross and lead to dispute and, almost inevitably, physical conflict. Although both espouse Puritan ideals, the Thorians and Amalathians are frequently at loggerheads with each other, perpetuated mostly on the part of the Amalathians. The goal of the Thorians, that to resurrect or reincarnate the Emperor, is anathema to the maintenance of the imperial status quo espoused by the Amalathians. The distrust of the Thorian agenda is propagated mainly by the Amalathians uh, through the rest of the Inquisition, as an attempt to return the Emperor is diametrically opposed to the continuance of the Imperium and its organizations. The Amalathians uh, respond vehemently and often violently to any enterprise that jeopardizes the current state of affairs. In Imperial history terms, the Amalathians are a relatively new phenomena, and the Thorians paint a picture of them as an upstart reactionary philosophy, particularly in comparison to the ages-long tradition and beliefs of the Resurrectionists and Incarnationists. This is seen by the Amalathians as arrogance, symptomatic of the general disregard for the Imperium perpetrated by the Thorians. With this in mind, the Thorians care little for the aspirations of the Amalathians and their intransigent attitudes regarding the Imperium. They see the perpetuation of the Imperium as a mere footnote against their grandiose plans for the resurrection of the Emperor and his restoration as the true leader of mankind. For the most part, Thorians are keen to observe rather than to influence gathering knowledge for future quests and finding answers to the eternal questions of the nature of mortality, the Emperor, and the war. The actions of the Amalathians do little to contradict this agenda, and the Thorians are usually quite content merely to watch the efforts of the Amalathians in an amused, condescending manner. Terrible. Thus, most conflict is initiated by the Amalathians, whether the actions of the Thorians directly affect their aims or not. It is the question of principle rather than substance that the Thorians must not be allowed to further their aims. In turn, Aggressive action by the Amalathians will garner a response from fellow Thorians, escalating the situation and increasing the instability and danger inherent in the Inquisition. By these unconscious means, the Thorians have been drawn into a centuries-long feud, not particularly of their making, but one that attacks their fundamental philosophy and purpose. And so, my dear colleagues and comrades, I do hope you have enjoyed this exploration of some of the beliefs of our nearest and dearest peers and friends, or not. I will return again with more information 
that may be useful for yourself or for those acolytes you have in tow, to inform them about the nature of the mighty Inquisition. Okay, everybody, thank you all very much for watching. Do hope you've enjoyed this exploration of a very important element of the 40k law, the sort of inner workings of the, Imper of, of the Inquisition and the Imperium. And if you'd like more details about some of the things that have been mentioned here, I've got a video on the Imperial Church and on the Wars of Vindication. I should be, if I remember, <laughs> if I remember, I'll put some, uh, oh, and I'll put the, uh, the Quixos video with Eisenhorn and Quixos and that sort of, how that plays into this, these two conflicting visions of the Imperium from the Inquisition's point of view. Uh, I'll put those free videos uh, if, you, if you're interested in, oh, and there's another one on the Sensei. I'll put a few in there, right? And all these videos, I think, are kind of linked to this subject and you kind of need to know it all to see all the different sides of the story. If you haven't watched them, uh, yeah, you, you will enjoy them and you'll gain some insight of this, this appeal to you. I'll be back anyway soon with more stuff, more campaign histories and stuff like that. Thank you all for watching. I hope you really enjoyed this. Really, really hope you enjoyed this. This is the stuff I really like about 40k, the nice little background stuff that's occurring that's, you know, a motivation for the characters. It adds bite and substance to the universe. But uh, yeah, fantastic work. I love all that Inquisitor stuff. It was great. Anyway, I'll see you all later on. Thanks very, very much. And uh, thank you to everybody supporting the channel. Your name's scrolling by here. And if you would like to help me out and get your name up there, then please do consider supporting the channel as a YouTube member, a Patreon, or on Subscribestar. Whichever works best for you. Really appreciate it. Additionally, if you wouldn't mind giving the video a like, subscribe to the channel, and let me know in the comments what you thought. All those things really help the channel. Small channel like mine. I need all the help I can get. And it costs you nothing. It costs you nothing. <laughs> all right. See you later. Thanks very much for watching. I'll see you later. Bye-bye.